Good morning. Um, my name's Luke. I'm one of the elders here at Life Church, and um, we're continuing in our one. Peter series. Why don't you turn with me, if you have a Bible, to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't, um, it will be on the screens. I'm going to read from the uh, ESV. That's the Bible I often uh, preach from, um, but uh, other Bibles are available. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to each other without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So I just said that um, in a few weeks' time, um, I, I say in a few weeks' time, my phone is on high alert at the moment because it could be any day that um, Beth goes into labour and we will have a baby. Now, lots of people have prepared me for this moment. There's some ways that I can't be prepared for becoming a dad for the first time, but lots of people prepared me. And you won't be surprised that the first thing that people say is, Luke, when you have your first child, it changes... Everything. That's right. Everything. This morning's passage, Peter wants his believers to know that when you follow Jesus, it really does change everything. And actually, if it doesn't change everything, we've missed something. If, if having a daughter, my first child, didn't change my life, you'd think, that's a bit odd. If we follow Jesus, it changes everything. Peter is showing us in this passage that following Jesus changes our whole lives. It changes our passion, the thing that drives our life, the thing we deeply want. It changes our perspective, how we see this world and this time that we live in. And it changes our pals or our friends. I had to make it alliterate. I feel like I don't alliterate enough for you guys, Life Church. I feel like I let you down on that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've received a few complaints. So there you go. Three Ps. <laughs> I'm joking. Actually, there's one thing no one's complained to me about, which isn't alliterating enough. But there you go, you get alliteration. It changes our passion, our perspective, even our friends, frat pals. Let's read verses one, and, uh, one to three again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What do you want? What do you want? I'm not trying to be hostile at a bar. What do you want? I'm trying to say to you, what, what do you really, really want? What are the passions deep in you that drive your behaviour? Because that's what passion does. Passion drives our behaviour. We all know the young couple, the Romeo and Juliet type, where you say to them, what are you doing on Friday night? And they say, oh, there's a, there's a lot on at the moment. I'm a bit busy. Oh, don't worry. What, what are you doing Saturday night? Do you know, I'm just a bit tired. I'm probably going to have a night in. Then the next thing you know, you check your phone. Oh, they're, they're out with their girlfriend again. Because passion drives us. Or the response, I'm really sorry, love, but I can't put the shelves up this Saturday. But I can drive 40 miles to an exhibition of cars I really wanted to see. You see, passion, it drives us, doesn't it? The things we deeply want drive our behaviour. And so this is what our passage is challenging us to think about this morning. Do we want to live for the passions of the flesh? Human passions, as Peter calls them here. Or do we want to live for the will of God? Now, this isn't a leading question. You might hear that and straight away feel guilty. Oh, it, oh what's Luke saying? Oh, do I want to do the good thing or do I want to do the fun thing? That's what Luke's saying, isn't it? The right thing or the fun thing. It's not, it's not like a, a parent says to a toddler, do you really want to bite your sister again while pointing at the naughty step? Now, this isn't what our passage is saying this morning. Our passage is saying genuinely, what's deep in your heart? What do you really want in life? Because that will drive your behaviour. Passions of the flesh, these human passions, as Peter refers to them, they're seductive and they're tempting. Why? Because they promise us the very things that many of us want. Verse three, Peter says, the time that is past suffices. That means it's enough. The time that's past is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Slavery to sin is not being forced to do the things you don't want to do. Slavery to sin is wanting to do the very things that enslave and destroy us. How can you break free from sin if you don't want to break free from sin? And so what are these passions that Peter says drive us? Well, he lists a few. He talks about sensuality, passions in general, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. We could go into exactly what each of those means, but the general picture that Peter is painting here is indulging in fleshly things. He's talking about indulging in sex and food and alcohol. By the way, those three things are good gifts of God when used in the right context. But here Peter is saying when sex and food and alcohol is taken out of the context God made it for, when it becomes the gods that we seek after, the, 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 the pleasure and satisfaction that we deeply long for, then there becomes a very big issue if that is what is driving us. You see, these indulgences, they're so attractive because they promise things that many people want. Sex promises us satisfaction, pleasure, intimacy, security, a sense of being loved. Food promises us assurance, escapism at times, control. Alcohol 
can promise us maybe just, just a bit of time where the pressures of life just aren't quite as in focus and we can feel as if they're not going to crush us the second we sober up. And so we have another drink because, well, I deserve it. And we comfort it because, to be honest, it makes me feel better. Or we live on with habitual masturbation as part of our existence because, well, it doesn't do much harm and actually, I want to. We can have our desires all wrong. I think it's interesting to note Peter mentions one more thing in the list. He says, lawless idolatry. We have to be real. When we're indulging in things of the flesh, what are we opening the door to? There is a spiritual reality to sin. When we indulge in the things of the flesh, we are doing the exact thing Satan wants us to do. We are opening a door that, I tell you, we don't want to be opening. Yes, Peter was writing in a time where idolatry was rife. In the Roman society, when you had drinking parties, it was often at festivals and sacrifices to the gods. But even in this secular culture, let's not kid ourselves. When we indulge in the flesh, what are we opening the door to? I tell you, things you do not want to be opening the door to. But Christ saved us from that. That's what chapter 3 told us. That's what Sam's sermon last week showed us at the end of chapter 3. In one of the three beautiful um, passages that Peter does about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in this third one, it reminds us that Christ died in the flesh. He died, he came, he was one of us, but he died in the flesh and came alive by the Spirit, was physically resurrected, but in the Spirit. And now through baptism, we, those of us who believe and follow Jesus, are joined with him. And so into that death we go and that old life dies with him so that we can come out the other side and rise with Christ. And chapter three ends by saying we do that. Baptism, that joining with Christ does that so we can have a clear conscience before God. But let me tell you, a clear conscience before God isn't a get out of jail free card. It's not there to stand before God and say, oh, cheers for letting me off the hook for that fine. I'll carry on with my life now. No, Jesus did that for something much more important. Jesus did that for you relationship with you. Chapter 3, verse 18. So this is the beginning of the passage just before. We'll just go there for a second. But chapter 3, 18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. The aim was always relationship with God. Hallelujah. It was knowing him. It was being loved by him. When Peter says in verse one of our passage, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, he's saying Christ has won us so that at the front of our minds, the love that God has for us and the desire and love that we then can have for God in return should be at the front of our minds and the depths of our hearts. A relationship with the Father who made us, saw us in our wretched mess and reached down to love and care and wash, and forgive, and bless us. The true mark of a Christian is not a do-gooder. The true mark of a Christian is one who delights in Jesus, one who loves him. My favourite verse is in 1 Peter, halfway through chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, or verse 8, Peter begins, though you have not seen him, you love him. And so as Peter says, the time is past, 
It's enough to carry on doing the rubbish of our old lives, which if we're honest, they promised a lot, but they destroyed us. Those indulgences promised so much, but they enslaved us. The time is enough for them. Yes, our old lives shout to us, come back to me. I'll give all the things that you want to you, but we know one who is better. We know one who is deeply satisfying. We know the one who is truly loving. Because when we love Christ, we live for him. Christ died on the cross that our heart of stone, which wanted all these indulgences, would be put to death and gave us a heart of flesh that we might love him. He's the one who changed our hearts. He's the one who turned us to him. He's the one by his spirit who brought us back to life. But Peter encourages those of us who follow Jesus, don't turn back to that stuff. Don't go back to the old life, the old loves. The time has passed for that rubbish. And it was rubbish. Because when we love Jesus, when our desire first and foremost is for him, that's when we see our behaviour change. It's not trying harder. It's not saying tomorrow I'll do better. It's when I say Jesus is better. I want Jesus more. That's when our habits are curtailed. That's when the back of our sin is broken. Yes, we keep fighting to say no to those things. Peter admits that himself. He says in verse one, uh, whoever, what does he say? I don't have it on here. <laughs> he says, arm yourselves in the same way thing. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffered in the flesh. We've talked so much about persecution over the last few weeks. One of the great sufferings of following Christ. Do you know one of the other great sufferings of following Christ? Saying no to your old life. That burns. That cuts deep. But when you know Jesus, that pain is worth it. When you know Jesus, the, the, the saying no, not running back into bed with our old lives, that is worth it. Jesus on the cross changed our passion, our deepest desire to not be for all this rubbish, but to be for God. Let us live in that fullness. And so with our hearts changed, Peter encourages us, to continue changing. He encourages us to change perspectives. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7. We're going to come back to verse 4 and 5. Don't start freaking out. having just missed a bit. Uh, so let's read verses 6 and 7 together. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Before we move on uh, and think about how Peter calls us to change perspective, um, you might have read that verse, especially the first thing we read and think, what is Peter going on about? My dad loves bicycles. Uh, he would often fix my bike and he'd explain what he did. He'd say, oh yeah, so this happened, then this happened. So I did this, I did that. Uh, and that's the reason it went wrong. Makes sense, doesn't it? And I'd say to him, yeah, 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 that makes total sense. Yep, understand, I followed along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, could you explain one bit again? He said, yeah, what bit would you like me to explain again? I said, uh, everything. When you read a verse, like verse six, sometimes you might think, what are you talking about, Peter? For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Now you might have an NIV or a different version who adds a word, who are now dead, which I think is helpful actually, even though it's not there in the original language. Um, but what's Peter doing here? This isn't just a lesson to understand a hard Bible verse. I think he's doing something important. In verses four and five, which we'll come back to, 
Peter speaks of former friends and associates of ours who think that this life is all there is. That this life is all there is, so why not enjoy it? Why not let our hair down? Why not indulge in these things? More to the point, why suffer for Jesus if this life is all there is? But Peter knows, and we know, that's not true. There's more to this life. Actually, the gospel has effects that echo on into the resurrection. And that's what Peter's saying here. When he said, this is why the gospel was preached, even though, to those who are dead, he's saying the gospel was preached to people, even though now they've died, the gospel was preached and they believed it, therefore it has an effect beyond. And that's what we believe. The resurrection of the dead is beyond this life. So it's worth suffering for Christ in this life. And he goes on, he says, though they were judged in the flesh the way people are. What does that mean? It means that in this life, many will look on us and scoff. Many will look on us and say, your life is wasted following all this Jesus stuff, not enjoying all the things that life has to offer you. Your life is wasted. The world will judge us through human eyes. But we take courage because we might live in the spirit where God does. We know there is a resurrection beyond. So why have we looked at this tricky verse? Well, it's because Peter is calling us to change perspective. Peter, again and again in this letter, and here now especially, is calling us to think about the times we live in with eyes on eternity. He continues in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Sometimes I get so obsessed about what's coming up in my week that I forget that there's something bigger going on in life. Those who work in the staff office know that I meticulously plan <laughs> my calendar. I think I have 10 different colours that my, my calendar is planned into so I can make sure I'm focusing on the right things at the right time. But sometimes we get so focused on what's happening today that we forget we live in a time which is important. You see, Jesus came 2,000 years ago and when he died and then was resurrected, he began something new. He was the first fruit of new creation. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. That's a fancy way of saying he began the kingdom of God. But it hasn't yet come to completion. New creation started, but one day when Christ returns, it will be completed. The kingdom has come, but it's still coming. And so we must know that we live in particular times. The end of all things is at hand. And so our perspective can't be, what's tomorrow? It's just another Monday. What's tomorrow? Because who knows when Christ will return? Who knows how long my life is? And I want to do God's will with the little days I have. And so we live in between the times. We live with a perspective of eternity, but that eternity must bleed into our day-to-day lives now. So what does it look like to live in light of eternity? Well, firstly, we've got to remember that eternal life is not something out there to be waited for. In fact, this is what Peter is saying when he calls them, he calls in the letter for them to be sober-minded and self-controlled. The NIV says it well, it says alert and sober-minded. These are two words, they're meant to be a pairing of words which are about having clear perspective, a clear understanding of the times we were in. And so when we think about eternity, I wonder how you respond. When we think about the life that is to come, does that breed passiveness in us? Are we passive? Do we think, well, I know where I'm going to end up, so I'm going to put my feet up and wait till I get there. Does it breed panic in us? Actually, this life is really hard and I'd rather get it over with. 
I'd rather go and be with the Lord. I'd, I'd rather this is over. Because Peter actually calls us, interestingly, to do something quite different. And if I'm honest with you, it's not something I expected. Peter says, when we have a right perspective of the times we live in, we pray. Did you notice that? He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Why? For the sake of your prayers. The first fruits Peter mentions here of an eternal perspective, of a kingdom urgency, is to pray. To have a sober understanding of the times we live in means we pray. We pray for our friends and family. Let's think back through the last few weeks. We pray for our husbands who might not yet obey the words and our family members around it. We pray for our bosses and our colleagues who maybe at times are really unfair, but they're lost and need saving. We pray for our governments, those who actually have authority to do good or to do ill to some of the most vulnerable in our society. And so we pray. And we also pray for ourselves. We pray that in the midst of this difficult age that we live in, through the joking and the mocking, through the cost of our work position or even family rejection, Lord Jesus, give me strength to hold on. I love that prayer that Paul led us through earlier in Ephesians 3. What was the prayer? It was Christ be central in my heart. That's actually the, the words that it says, let the love of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. And so with the right perspective of the age we're in, we're called to pray. I don't know about you, but I find that very challenging. I'm not sure that's my response. A sober perspective, a right awareness of the times we live in calls us to pray. But if prayer is the first fruit of a proper perspective, Peter goes on. There's something else he's very keen to impress on this early church and on us. Let's go back to verse four and five and read through. With respect to this, the Gentiles, that's the, he's just been talking about those who don't believe Jesus and he calls them the Gentiles. With respect to this, the Gentiles are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I mean, speak, they speak abusive things about you. They speak wrong of you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we've looked at how when we follow Jesus, he changes our heart, he changes our passion, what drives us what we live for. He's changed our perspective. This is a critical time we live in. And so the first fruit of that is we must pray. But Peter throughout this passage also spells out a reality that there may, may be a need to change some of our friendship circles. As humans, we need each other. We need friendship. The power of togetherness is there everywhere in society. Think about how some people find belonging in family. Other people find belonging in things like the LGBTQ plus community. Don't be, don't be naive to think that's only about ideology. There's a real deep sense of belonging in these places. Some places, some people find belonging in political affiliations. Some people find belonging in gangs. Now for all of these expressions of belonging with all the issues and complexities that they bring, it reveals something that each of us as humans has a deep, deep need to belong. And we have seen throughout the letter of 1 Peter, especially over the last few weeks, that one of the great costs of following Jesus is realising that some of our relationships with people will suffer because of Christ. 
I think back to two weeks ago when I preached about these women who were married to men who were not believers and the cost it would have been to them to say, actually, I'm going to step out and follow Jesus. And here again, Peter talks about the importance and the, the, uh, the impact on relationships that following Jesus has. But I think he has a subtly different emphasis here. Some of our friendships, maybe sometimes even a romantic relationship with those from our old lives, from those from our past, we may, I'm not saying must, we may have to change. Why? Because Peter is clear we must make a clean break from the behaviours, those indulgences that our old friends still live for. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Being friends with those who don't know Jesus is critical as a Christian. That's what the whole last four weeks has been about. What does it mean to witness to your family members who don't know Jesus? What does it mean to witness in your workplace? What does it mean to witness in wider society? Being friends with those who don't know Jesus is critical. And Peter has gone on and on and on about it. But some of us know the power of those friendship circles from our past life and the pressure that when we're with them, that there's a huge, huge pressure to go back into those things, to go back into the drugs or the parties or the crime or the belittling jokes or the casual relationships or whatever it is. And so we have to make a choice. And sometimes the choice is made for us. Peter says in the passage that our friends, our old friends, they're surprised when you don't join in with them. And what's their response? They malign you. They speak abusively of you. They, they, they mock you. Sometimes our friends will make the clean break for us. They'll turn their backs on us. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we have to make the choice ourselves. Sometimes we have to realise when I'm with them, though I love them, though God loves them, that flood of debauchery that Peter talks about is like a river that I'm just swept up in. It drowns me. It overwhelms me. I can't actually control myself when I'm there. And so for the sake of loving Jesus, whether for a time or whether for an extended period, I might have to make a clean break. This is a costly, costly thing. But if it's right, then it is a profoundly worshipful thing to do in the sight of Jesus. Now, let me be clear. Some relationships, Peter is very stark that we don't move on from. He makes great pains to say, no, wives, don't walk away from your marriages. Make great pains uh, to talk about certain contexts. So again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are many contexts, especially when it comes to family, that Peter is explicitly not saying walk away from. But some of you in the room know those friendship circles, which just tug you back in to the things that you're trying to make a break from. And it's in that context that you need to ask yourself whether for a time for longer, do I need to take some space? But there is encouragement. Because if you do have to make that choice, the Lord does not leave you alone as Billy no mates. Peter doesn't lead us into a place of isolation and loneliness, but actually he calls us, God calls us, into being part of something profound, the family of God. Verse 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly 
says love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The family of God, the church, us, one another. This is what we are called to. Not to be an isolated people who ignore the world. No, we're still part of the world. But actually there's a deeper community that God calls us into. Profound, isn't it? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is key. But what does it mean? What does it look like to love each other? We're going to look at these things. This is um, kind of where we're ending today. But we're going to look at these things, a few things that Peter says about loving one another, which I think are profound if we let them speak to us. And Peter really swings for the first thing he says. What does love look like? Well, firstly, love covers a multitude of sins. The passions of our flesh, they lead to a flood of debauchery, and we know that. Lots of us know that. The sin, the, the brokenness that piled up because of the lives we used to live. But what does love do? It covers sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers because in the community of believers, we are the people who've had our shame taken away by Jesus. The stains, the scars, the stench of sin has been purged and washed and healed by Christ. His wounds have healed you. And so as the people of God, we who are changed and transformed by him, we build a community that is not based on shame, but grace. And we must do that. It's hard to do that, but we must do that. Yes, we're called to repent. Yes, we're called to admonish one another. But we do those things, not from a, from a place of shame, but conviction. Not from a place of disgrace, but grace. And love also covers a multitude of sins because as a people of God who have had all our sins forgiven, we are called to forgive one another. My dear friends, put down your grudges. The time has passed. It's sufficient for grudges and unforgiveness because Christ has forgiven you. This is the community we are called to make. Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't we know that from the cross? What a precious, precious, both example and power that Christ set up. His love covers our sin. But Peter moves on. If that wasn't enough, what else does love do? What else does the love between believers look like? It looks like hospitality, joyfully welcoming others. Now, here's a little bugbear of mine. Some of us think hospitality and we think dinner parties. Hospitality is not dinner parties. Now you can be hospitable at a dinner party, but hospitality is a heart thing. It's a character thing. By the way, a person who doesn't have a spouse or a house can be hospitable because if they have a heart that says, I want to welcome you, whether that's into your home, whether that's on a Sunday morning, whether that's I'm going to give you a phone call because I know you need it, if their heart says, I'm opening my life to you, that is hospitality. Now, praise God for dinner parties. I love food. I love hanging out with people. They're good things. But that's not fundamentally what hospitality is. It's just an expression of it. Hospitality is opening our lives to other people. Finally, 
Peter describes the love between believers in one other way. It covers a multitude of sins. It, it opens our lives to people and it serves one another. I love this. I, I, I will not do this for the sake of all of you, but I could speak for hours on this one verse. As each has received a gift, use it to serve each other. Paul speaks at length in his letters about the spiritual gift, but Peter here only gives a couple of sentences, but they're rich. If you want to think about spiritual gifts, don't miss this passage in 1 Peter 4. As a church, many of you will know that we're at a time of releasing and equipping godly men and women to serve in the church in the way God has gifted them. That's something as elders we feel very passionately about, something we talked about in the family meeting. That's something that is only kind of the first shoots of that are coming through, but God is doing among us because we need each other. We've had wonderful words even over the last few months from, from Toller and Sue about these things, that we need each other. And this is what this verse is getting at. As each has received a gift, use it. Not sit on it, not be embarrassed about it, not make it about you, use it. And what does it mean to have a gift from God? It means you're a steward. What's a steward? A steward is someone who doesn't own the thing, but has been given responsibility to use it rightly. My dear brothers and sisters, we are stewards of God's grace. That's crazy. We are the ones who God has entrusted with grace from him, not for ourselves primarily, but to give for others. And so when you think about the gifts that God has given you, it can't be an arrogant thing. It can't be about what do I want to do with it? What can I achieve with it? What do I want to build? And it can't be an embarrassed thing. Oh, oh, I don't want to show off. No, God has given us something to use and he's given us something to use for the sake of others. It is a grace. It is God's kindness to the church. So I love that. We are stewards of God's grace and it's a varied grace. Others, uh, some have public speaking gifts. Peter says that, you know, some, whoever speaks, speak as the oracles of God. Prophetic gifts, preaching, leadership. There's, there's lots of more speaking gifts. Others have quieter serving gifts. Faithful care of others, quiet support, humble work in the unglamorous areas of church family. But that's not exhaustive. Whatever the gift that God has given you, use it. You're a steward of God's varied grace and you are given it to serve others. Above all else, love one another. That love, that love which covers a multitude of sins, that love which welcomes others into our lives, that love which serves others. If we were a church like that, in all its fullness, what a community we'd be. If we were a church like that, then the person who has only found a sense of belonging from a gang, the person whose family has turned their back on them because of their faith in Jesus, the person who has had to say no to certain things in their old life because they're saying yes to Jesus, if we are a place like that, then what a place to belong. Amen. The hurt doesn't go away, but the home is a place that they want to be. Yeah. If we are a community like that, Think about the people who would come and say, Jesus is attractive like you say he is. I love that. Jesus teaches in John 14. By this, all people will know you're my followers, though you have love one for another. And so as we end, we'll read verse 11 together. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter has lifted our eyes. He's changed our perspective. He's made us soberly judge what the times we live in are, what the priorities are to pray for those around us, to pray for God's kingdom to come, but also invest in the community of believers that he's brought us into. But he's done that by changing first our heart. That's where we started. Jesus changed our passion. He changed our heart. What's the motivation for the costly sacrifice to say no to those tempting indulgences? Christ alone. What's the motivation of even losing friends over it? Christ alone. What is the motivation of loving and serving our brothers and sisters even when we must forgive them time and again? It's Christ alone. When we see his glory, when we delight in who he is, not what he's done primarily, but who he is, which spills out into what he's done. When we get him, it makes those things worth it. What do you want? I want Jesus. We're going to respond. If the band wants to come up... um, We're going to pray into a number of issues because I realise that I throw out things and I don't throw them out lightly. I know when I talk about alcohol, that touches a number of us in the room. I know when I talk about food, that there are things that are difficult in our lives that we struggle with. I know when I talk about unforgiveness, there are places in our hearts that God is wanting to shine a light on, not for the sake of shame, but for the sake of renewal. And so whatever the thing is, if God has particularly spoken to you this morning, Jesus does want to bring healing. He wants to bring wholeness. But we don't do those things alone. And so we're going to pray in a second. But I also would encourage you, do you have someone you're walking the journey with? That's so important. We desperately need each other. We're going to pray in power, in expectation, but we need people to walk the journey with. So if you don't feel you have those people around you, whether that's in your life group, whether that's an old friend, whether, whatever that is, people who love the Lord and who are walking through these things with you, please come and find me one of the elders. We won't fix it all for you, but we want to do what we can to find people to come around you to be those friends. But we're going to pray now with the expectation of what God will do. And we're going to primarily pray that the love of Christ fills our hearts. So if... Actually, why don't we all stand, if if we're able to and would like to. um, It just makes it a bit easier for those of us who want to respond. Um, If you are trapped in habitual sin, I think God wants to speak to you this morning. If you're struggling to break away from a particularly destructive relationship, which you know is drawing you back away from Jesus, I believe God wants to speak with you this morning. If unforgiveness grips your heart, I believe God wants to speak to you this morning. And so I'm going to lead us, for those who want to, quietly, loudly, whatever you want to do. It's okay, it's between us and God. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of repentance. Now, I can't repent repent for you. I can pray for you, but my goodness, I can't repent for you. Repenting is saying, Lord Jesus, I've been running after that, but I'm turning back to you. 
So we're going to pray a prayer of repentance. I'm also going to pray for freedom and healing. One of the things we touched on very briefly is when we open the door to these things, there is a spiritual reality. So I'm just going to pray if there are particular things that Jesus breaks off those things. And then we're going to pray that the love of God will fill our hearts because that's what changes us. Romans 5, verse 5, talks about the Holy Spirit like this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love of Christ in our hearts. So let's pray. Father God, I've been walking away from you. I've been walking after and running after the things that I know entrapped me before. I name them to you in my heart. You know what they are. Father God, I really do believe that you're better than them. I really do believe that your grace is enough for me. I really do believe that Jesus is more wonderful than them. And so I turn back to you. I turn back to you and receive the forgiveness that only Jesus brings. I turn back and I receive what Jesus came to do, which was to bring me to you, Father. And now I pray for my dear brothers and sisters who just prayed something like that in their heart. And I just pray in the name of Jesus for anything that is holding them back from turning to you, anything that is a hook from their old lives that is in their heart, just in the name of Jesus that they be free. In the name of Jesus that they would have release from those things and freedom from those things. And now I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would fill our hearts with your love. That this would be a healing time where we receive the love of God through the Holy Spirit. So we're just going to quietly receive that now. God wants to minister to us through his love, by his Spirit. Silence is awkward, isn't it? But some of you are crying out to God in your hearts. I think that's what God's been saying to me. And he hears you. He hears you. And he's with you now. Receive the love of God. The promise is for you. There's nothing you achieve for it. There's nothing you do to earn it. You just receive it.